As we come to God's word tonight, uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together tonight. We thank you for eager ears, the desire to hear your word, and eager hearts that desire to know you and to love you. And Lord, we have to confess that for some of us, for most of us, we come to this room and, and perhaps we are distracted by all kinds of anxieties, by heartache, by our own sin or the sin of others against us, by the, own, our, the hardness of our own hearts. And so, Lord, we ask you to do the work that only you can do by your Spirit, to soften our hearts, to open our ears, to open our eyes, to behold your beauty and glory, your majesty, to hear the gospel and to respond in faith, to respond in obedience, to respond with love for you and love for others. Lord, may you do that. We ask this in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen. This evening, I want to spend some time meditating on Psalm chapter 8. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the 8th Psalm. This is a Psalm of David. And as you're opening to this Psalm, I want you to take a moment. You, You can even close your eyes if that's helpful to kind of visualize in your mind for a moment. I want you to, to take a moment to think about a time in your life when you found yourself in awe at the majesty and the immensity of God in His creation. And in that moment of, of really grasping somewhat the majesty and the immensity of God, your own personal smallness and insignificance in comparison to Him. Maybe it was a night out camping and you go out into a field and you look up at the stars and you see this this blanket of stars above your head. Maybe at some point in your life you have gone to some place like the Grand Canyon and you've stood on the the brink of the canyon and and the immensity of it that is so great that your mind can't even quite comprehend how how vast this thing is. Or, Or maybe it's been some night in the midst of a thunderstorm and you've heard the the crashing of the thunder all around you and it reminded you of the power of God. Or maybe it's something more delicate and quiet. Maybe it's a a moment of simply taking in a a beautiful field of wildflowers or or observing bees buzzing and pollinating, or butterflies fluttering. Take a moment and just just think about that. Think about the emotions that went through your heart in that time and place. 
the power of that moment, the, the nearness that you felt of God and His creation, the humility that you felt before Him there. I imagine David, when he penned Psalm 8, thinking about such a time in his own life. You know this, David was a young shepherd boy. And he would have spent day after day and night after night out in the open fields of the the wilderness with his sheep. Looking up at, at a sky that was completely unobstructed by light pollution, by city skylines. Out there, in all the majesty of God's creation, beholding all the things that God had made. This God that had flung the stars and the planets and the galaxies out into space with simply a word. If you have never had the experience of, of looking up at the night sky that is free of light pollution, put that on your bucket list. It is incredible. It's incredible. And it's in response, I believe, to this encounter with God and His majesty and His creation that David penned the words to this psalm, Psalm 8. And so let's read this together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. This psalm is bookended with the exact same refrain there at the the beginning and at the end. He he begins and he ends this psalm with the same word of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so that should tip us off right there. That the, the, the thrust of this psalm, the whole reason for David writing this psalm is to give glory to God. And yet... At the heart of this psalm, there is this question that David asks. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? And hopefully, you have asked something akin to this same question when you have found yourself there before the immensity of God. Why God? Why would you care for me? Why would you look after me? Why would you even bother to pay attention to me? 
Why would I ever even cross your mind? You are so much bigger. You are so much greater. You you are unbounded by, by time and space. You are eternal in all of your being. You are holy in all of your character. What am I? Why would you even think of me? Let's see how God answers that question in this psalm. There in verses 1 through 2, David declares how God's praise, God's God's glory spans from the heights of heaven to the mouth of babies. And notice the the very first things that he says. It's, O Lord, our Lord. And you'll notice in your Bible how that first Lord is all capitalized, which means that it's translating the, the covenant name of God. The name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush at Mount Sinai. I am who I am. Yahweh. I am. I am the self-sufficient one. I am the the eternally existing one. I am the one who is covenanting myself to my people. Binding myself by solemn promises to the people that I have redeemed and made my own. And notice what David says of this eternally existing, self-sufficient, perfect God. He says, He is our Lord. And sometimes the most important, the most pivotal words in the Bible are the smallest. And this is one of those occasions. He's not someone else's. He's he's not some distant God. He's not some detached God. He is my God. He's the God who cares for me. The God who is with me. I am His and He is mine. Over and over again, the core promise of Scripture is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will dwell among them and make my home with them. Friends, this is good news. This is gospel. That God is with us. He is for us. What a promise. Friends, when when life gets hard, when we are struggling, when we are suffering, when we are going through the valley of the shadow of death that David will talk about, this is the, the promise that we can hold on to. That even there, He is our God. He is my God. He is your God. He has covenanted Himself to us. He has made solemn promises to us. And He will not betray His promises. That even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Praise God. And His glory, He says, extends from the throne room of heaven to the infant's nursery. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Another way that you could translate uh, that that phrase for established strength is uh, he has established a fortress. There is a castle that is built out of the praise that comes from even the mouth of babies and infants. And I think one of the the ways to understand this verse is to to see how Jesus uses it. 
in Matthew's gospel. Because in Matthew 21, Jesus actually quoted this verse to the scribes and the the Pharisees who were gathered at the temple who were indignant at him because he was healing and he was teaching. and, And all the while, the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna was this term of praise to one who brings salvation. They're saying, you are the one who brings salvation. You are the son of David. They were crying out to Jesus as the Savior of God's people. And so I think that we can can extract from that that it is the confession of Christ that is the fortress that can come even from the mouth of the smallest children. It has the power to stop God's enemies in their tracks. It has the power to make Satan turn heel and run. God is just as delighted in the angelic praise around His throne as He is with the the child learning to sing, Jesus loves me on her mother's lap. God is pleased. God is pleased. And it is that word of praise. It is the confession of Christ that is the strong fortress. Verses 3 through 8. In this section of the psalm, I would title this Paradise Made. Paradise Made. When astronomers point their telescopes up into the night sky, in any direction, they find galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy out in the the far-flung reaches of space. And some estimate, I don't know how they come up with these numbers, but I'm just going to go with what the scientists say. Some estimate that there are 100 billion galaxies in our universe, together containing as many as 300 sextillion stars, which is a number that is beyond my comprehension. But, But to give you something of a grasp, that would be 23 zeros behind the number three. So the number three with 23 zeros, how many stars they estimate. It's a number that surpasses the the, the boundaries of our imagination. But but to try to put some kind of uh, ability to sort of wrap our minds and comprehend that would be to think of it this way. Some estimate that if you were to number all the grains of sand on all the beaches on our planet Earth, that there are about 7.5 quintillion grains of sand, which means that it would take all the grains of sand on the beaches of 40,000 Earths to number the number of stars in the universe. That is what we see when you peer up into the night sky. So truly in comparison to that, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
What is the Son of Man that you care for Him? Yet it's not only that that God is mindful of humanity, it's not only that He cares for mankind, but He goes on to say, you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned Him with glory and honor. You've given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So God's answer to the question, what is man? Is you're the crown jewel of my creation. You are the the very pinnacle of everything that I made. Let that sink in for a moment. That of all the galaxies and all the planets flung across our universe, that, that from the giant sequoias, to the smallest atom, from the Grand Canyon to the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast, you are the crown jewel of God's creation. Clearly, David has in mind Genesis 1. In the creation account of Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, after God had formed and filled the earth with all the other creatures, he said, Let us make man in our image in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in Psalm 8, David is simply quoting back to God what God had already established in his word. What he had said that we are going to make man, male and female, and we're going to make them in our image and give them dominion. That means to rule, to have authority. In Genesis 2.15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is what has been called the creation mandate. In other words, man was, was mandated by God to cultivate the earth and to protect the earth. To cultivate it, to to bring order out of chaos, to bring forth life and fruitfulness, to protect it, to, to let nothing harm it, to guard it, to be these kind of good kings and queens over the creation, and to to bear the image of God to the creation the creation. But then clearly something went wrong. Terribly wrong. Paradise was made. And then paradise was lost. Genesis 3 tells us the story of how Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. They distrusted His goodness. They fell into sin. After eating the the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God pronounced a very specific curse on Adam. In Genesis 3, He says, because you've done this, because you've eaten the tree that I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. 
A curse now rests on this earth. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, it's not going to work like it used to work. The earth isn't going to yield itself to you like it used to yield itself to you. The creatures are not going to serve you like they used to serve you. Your dominion over creation has been broken. What was once a blessing has now become a curse. You're going to spend your life striving only to feel the futility of it all. As the preacher in Ecclesiastes sums it up, he says, What has man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's going to be no rest from it. Even when you lay down at night and you close your eyes, the vanity of it all is going to wash over you. The futility of it all. The toil of it all. And the author of Hebrews, he sees the dilemma here. He sees the brokenness. In chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, he quotes from this psalm. He quotes how David says that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And then he goes on and in this really understated way, he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so what the author of Hebrews is recognizing is that this lofty picture that Psalm 8 uh, paints for us of the position of mankind in creation is not what we see. Rather, we see a world that is a far cry from that. Because rather than bringing order, we bring chaos. Rather than bringing life, we bring death. Rather than bringing blessing, we bring cursing. Paradise has been lost. So what hope do we have? Well, the glorious story of Scripture is that what Adam lost, Christ regained. The author of Hebrews will go on to put it this way. He says, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus who is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. He's saying Jesus, the eternal Son of God, without beginning of life or end of days, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, became a man. And not just A man. He didn't just come as some full-grown king in a palace. 
He came as a baby, as a helpless child, dependent upon his mother, born in a cattle stall, laid in a feeding trough. The one who was exalted above all things, who with the Father and the Spirit had taken part in the creating and the forming and the filling of all things, who is worshipped by angels, he left his eternal glory and entered into the depths of humility. As Philippians 2 says, to take on the form of a servant, of the lowest of the low, to become one of us. So that where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Where Adam distrusted God's goodness and disobeyed God's command and ate of the forbidden tree, Christ trusted God wholeheartedly. He obeyed God completely and He gave Himself on a tree for us in our place. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of, the knowledge of good and evil, it was like this poison seeped into to the root of the tree of humanity. That everyone, all the generations that would come after them, are poisoned by their sin, by their faithlessness. But as Christ hung upon the tree of the cross, it was like that poison was poured into a cup. And he drank it down to the dregs so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. By his resurrection in a human body, Christ has restored our humanity to its rightful place, to its created place of glory and honor. In his ascension, Christ has raised our human nature to be seated at the very right hand of God in glory. Let me close with this. On February 14th, 1990, the mission managers of Voyager 1, the space probe that had been sent out from Earth, they commanded the probe to look back one last time and to take one final picture of Earth before it passed beyond the, the, the place where it would ever be able to do so again. By this time, the probe had already passed beyond Neptune. It was about 3.7 billion miles from the sun. And in the photograph, Earth appears as this one tiny, minuscule, blue dot in this vast black void. It is one pixel. Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer, planetary scientist, and atheist, as he looked at that photo and mused on Earth's position in the cosmos, he wrote this, He said, 
our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. That's what Carl Sagan thought of that. But Scripture tells a vastly different story. Help has come. And help is coming again. The fine-tuning of the universe that has made it possible for intelligent life to exist on our planet is evidence that there is a God who has designed it as such. And that God cares. He cares for you. And He sent His Son to die for you and for me. To taste death. To give us life. And the glory and the honor that was supposed to be ours that we ruined, He is restored. And He is coming again. And He will take us to be with Him He will raise us in glory to reign with Him. And brothers and sisters, that is glorious, good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of You. Lord, we recognize how small and insignificant we are. And certainly, when we take a diligent look at our hearts and we recognize the wreckage that is there, the sin and the wreckage that we make of everything around us by our sin, who are we, who are we, God, that you would be mindful of us? And we stand in awe of your love. Love that would not let your people go. That would not give up on us, but would pursue us. Even to the point of the death of Christ. Who is now crowned with glory and honor. Who has united us to Himself. Lord, we love You and we praise You. May this reality, may this truth bring greater humility to our hearts, but also an assurance, an assurance of our position with You that causes us to live in a new way, in a way that that begins to restore what has been broken and that brings blessing where there once was cursing. May you do that in us and through us.
for the glory of your name. Amen.